text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, and this is God's holy word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your church. I thank you for the gifts and the gospel. And I would pray here this morning, Lord, that you would take us and make us into exactly the church you want us to be. Lord, I pray you will convict us, each believer, that we would indeed serve in your body in accord with the gifts that you have given us. I pray that we will think wisely. I pray that we will learn well. I pray that you will sanctify us. And I pray for those who don't know you that they will come to know you. And that is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Isn't it always fun to hear a person say, I have a gift for you. Y'all like that? Some of you do. It usually makes you think that somebody has thought about you and they've chosen to be kind to you. And hopefully it's a nice surprise and hopefully it's a thing that you can enjoy and You know, sometimes it's nice when it's even something you can use, right? Christians, God has a gift for you. It's a good gift. It is given out of kindness. It is given as a result of the gospel. And it is a thing that you are to use and to enjoy. Now, last week, we got into Ephesians 4. We touched verse 7. That's about as far as we got. And we began a discussion of how God has given each of us a spiritual gift. Now this week we're going to continue to look at the issue of walking worthy of the gospel calling to which all of us have been called. We're going to continue to look at living lives of Christian unity in the church. And we're looking at how God has gifted us toward unity. If you're a note taker, I would suggest that we'll find three points here this morning. So you want to make spots for that, that's fine. Point number one, you ready by the way? Just checking. Point one, Jesus has given you a spiritual gift. Jesus has given you a spiritual gift. Look at verse verse seven, first of all here. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. From verses one through six, Paul called the church to unity. He called us to develop attributes of unifying Christian character, verses 1 through 3. He pointed out the fact that that the church is a unity in verses 4 through 6. But now he begins to remind you and me that though we are a unity, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father... We are also a body made up of unique parts. True? 
Look around this room and tell me how many unique parts you see. (laughs) Unity comprised of uniqueness describes the church of the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? Grace, the Bible says here, was given to each of us. We all have this grace. This grace is according to the measure of Christ's gift. We have different kinds of gifts. We have gifts in different amounts. But every last Christian has been given by God a spiritual gift. Now, last week, we spent the entire sermon talking about this point. So we won't belabor it here. By the way, I have to confess to you guys here. Sometimes this happens to the pastor. You start writing a sermon... And what you think is point one becomes the sermon. And that's what you were blessed to receive last week. So you're welcome. (laughs) Now, but if you are a Christian, what do you need to know? You have been given a spiritual gift by God at your salvation. That is to say, God has done something by his spirit in your soul to uniquely equip you to serve the local church. Whether you're young or old, man or woman, rich or poor, God has gifted you to play a role in helping in the body of Christ. Amen? You guys are so quiet when you think, man, this might make me work. I don't know if I want to amen this. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. Now, I suggested to you last week that I don't believe that your gift is going to be one of the apostolic sign gifts, like dramatic heal the whole crowd type of healings uh, or speaking in tongues. I I think those gifts were uniquely for the first century apostles to attest to their right to speak uh, the word of God, to write holy scripture. I think that's what those gifts were for. Um, I definitely do not believe your gift will be a revelatory gift. I don't believe any gift that God gives you today is going to bring new revelation or new words from God to the church because the canon of Scripture, the authoritative measure of Scripture is complete. And once the canon of Scripture was closed, those gifts were not needed. And if they were practiced, I believe they would speak against the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, some of the gifts of God that we're going to read about are particularly focused on leaders in the church. We saw that last week, and we'll talk about those when we get down to verse 11. But know this, all of us, regardless of your leadership status, have a gift from God. And and your gift, I would suggest to you, is a unique, supernatural empowering given to you by God to help the local church to better honor Jesus. I do not assume that your gift has to be exactly one thing on the list. Some people do, I don't, and, you know, again, we don't have to fight about that. I think your gift is going to be a unique mingling of the gift categories that we see in the Scripture that God will use in the body. I think it would be wise for you, Christian, to pray, to talk with other believers, to talk with an elder in the church, to try to figure out how is it God has gifted you. I think it would be even wiser of you to start serving in the church in the ways you think you might be gifted because as you serve, as God uses you to help others, as you figure out how you particularly find joy in building up the body, you are going to know what is your gift even if you don't have a label for it. 
That's where we were last week. Does that sound familiar to you all from last week? If it doesn't, you need to either listen to the sermon again or come talk to me about why I'm not clear. Um, And I would love, you know, just honestly, I would love to talk to any of you about what you think your gift might be or to help you in that process. I've had some good conversations over the last week where people ask, what do you think my gift is? And from time to time, we surprised each other as we looked at, you know what, I think you're probably gifted in this way. But for now, let's move on so that I don't re-preach the last sermon. Know that you have a gift, Christian. Pray that you will find it and use it for the glory of God, okay? Point number two now. This is the new ground. The gospel is the source of our gifts. The gospel is the source of our gifts. Look at this in verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So Paul's talking to us here about the fact that Jesus has graciously gifted every one of the redeemed. He cites for us in a rather strange way a verse from Psalm 68. If you keep your eyes on the Ephesians text because you'll catch it if you keep your eyes on on Ephesians here. In Psalm 68, 18, Paul writes this. You ascended, or Paul, (laughs) David probably, excuse me there. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Psalm 68, 18 speaks of the ascent of the Lord And so the picture that's being poetically painted is that of a conquering king climbing the hill back to his throne after a victory, right? And the king, he would conquer, and often the king would have trailing behind him at the end of the processional captives from the battle. And the king is going to be praised, and the king is going to receive gifts from the people who are glad that he's back and from the captives that he's conquered. Now, what's interesting, though, if you were paying attention to the Ephesians passage, when Paul cites Psalm 68, 18, he writes it differently. Instead of Paul saying the king receives gifts, Paul says that the conquering king gives gifts. Now, why? Uh, you You might say that it's because Paul, maybe he's reading some different translation of the psalm. But I would say it is simply that Paul is an inspired apostle. He, inspired by the Spirit of God, has a point that he wishes to make. Since Paul is an apostle writing under the inspiration of the Lord, we really don't need to worry much about why this sounds slightly different than Psalm 68, 18. But what we do need to grasp is that the picture Paul is painting Like a king returning from battle in victory, the Lord Jesus has ascended to his holy throne in heaven and like a king returning from a battle, Jesus has captives that he leads with him in his return. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, rescued God's people. Jesus took people who had been captive to sin, who had been rebels against God, who had been under the wrath of God, and Jesus led them out and he made them into children of God. You guys know about folks like that, don't you? That should be you, Christians. But what Paul wants us to see even more is this. Jesus, the ascended 
conquering king gives gifts to his people out of the spoils of his victory. Jesus has won. Don't you think you should be happy about that, by the way? Jesus has won. Jesus has blessings and gifts to bestow upon his people because of that victory. Believers, your spiritual gifts come to you out of that victory. And we're going to see in verse 11 that the gifts of church leaders come out of that victory. Now, do you remember that when Jesus was on earth, he told his disciples he had to return to his father? He had to ascend back to his holy throne before the Holy Spirit could come and give gifts to and empower us as his followers. You guys remember that? John John, uh, 16, verses 5 through 7, read like this. Jesus said, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus makes it clear. His return to heaven is tied to the sending of the Spirit of God. The Savior let the disciples know that the sending of the Holy Spirit to indwell all believers is better for us than were Jesus to remain with the disciples physically on the earth. So Paul has told us each of us has a gift according to the unique measure of the grace of Christ. Psalm 68, 18 reminds Paul of the way that this worked because it speaks of an ascending king and captives and the giving and the receiving of gifts. And now Paul's going to go a little further to remind us that every bit of this is connected to the gospel. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians 4. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So now we've got Jesus descended, descended, and ascended. He came down, then went back up. What's he talking about? In simple terms here, Paul is speaking of the full ministry of Jesus. He is hinting to us at the gospel. What's the word ascend, ascended mean? It means to go up. Now, we know Jesus is God, right? So Jesus is eternally God. There's never a time when Jesus was not God. There's never a time that God the Son was not God. We know that God the Son is eternally exalted in in, in glory from the beginning. So since Jesus is already God most high, how could he go up? If you're already at the top, you can't go up further, right? For Jesus to ascend, he has to have come down to a lower position. That's what Paul's saying. What Paul's telling us here, Jesus came down to earth, accomplished his will, and then returned to heaven in victory. And don't let yourself be confused by that phrase, to the lower regions, verse 9. That's simply a reference to Jesus coming down from heaven to earth. Of course, earth, a region lower than heaven. 
The descent to lower regions there is not some mystical reference to hell or some other subterranean thing. Honestly, guys, this discussion is not so much about physical directions of up and down. I mean, think about it for a second. Well, I guess I should ask. Most of you are not flat earth people, right? Okay, just checking. Eric? No, okay. Uh, uh, Up, wouldn't you guys agree that up in Australia is different than up from America? Look at the globe. They're going different directions, right? So when you think about heaven as up, Don't think of it as a physical direction so much, right? Think of the up and the down as places of greater or lesser glory. Heaven, the place of the throne room of God, is not particularly up there, right? So that somebody who's on a different side of the planet is pointing in the wrong direction. Heaven is near us, for sure, but it's beyond us. True? Maybe this will help. How many of you have read Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? Okay, very good. Where is Narnia? Can you get to Narnia by flying on an airplane or walking in a particular direction? Not really, right? Narnia in the novels is a place that opens to you when a doorway opens, right? Once it was in a wardrobe, once it was in a painting. But nobody who read those novels thought that the children could get there if they just walked in a particular physical direction long enough. And heaven, like the imaginary place of Narnia, it's not somewhere you could fly a rocket ship to get to. The Bible does not picture heaven as something that you you can get to if you just went up far enough. Heaven is the place you enter when God brings you there. And the language of heaven being up or beyond the skies, it's the best way for us to describe the concept that heaven is glorious and it's greater than anything we could ever imagine. And and there's no way to think of it as, as lesser or lower, so we say it's up there. But it's not about the sky. It's about where the glory of God is and the fact that God reigns supreme. If you look at 2 Corinthians 12 too, don't, don't worry about turning there right now, Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven. And he's meaning that that is the place where God abides and, and the place where the saints who have gone before us are comforted as they await the day of resurrection. But why would Paul say third heaven? Some people used to say that the immediate air above the earth, up to where the birdies fly around, is the first heaven. That the place where the sun and moon and stars are, that's obviously not where the birdies fly around. That's the second heaven. And beyond all of that, somewhere greater and more glorious than that is where God's throne is over all, the third heaven. Again, the point is not a point of physical distance. It's not about going past the stars. It's about the fact that the place where God's throne room is is gloriously, wonderfully, majestically above all. Now, if you want to grasp the picture of the gospel that Paul is painting when he talks about Jesus descending out of heaven to the lower places and then ascending up into heaven, I would say you want to read what Paul wrote for us about Jesus in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's begin with a couple of truths we need to know. Start with this. God is. Amen? Start there. There is a God. God is the creator of all things, and God is the Lord over all things. God is absolutely perfect and holy and just. God is wonderfully loving, wonderfully merciful. God is a perfect and righteous judge. You guys agree with that stuff? Good, we're doing okay. God created humanity. People are made by God, in God's image, for God's glory. And people are rebels against God. With me? Every last one of us has committed sin, falling short of the perfection of God. Yes? Any of you as perfect as God on your own? No. Okay. Therefore, every one of us has two significant problems. Because we're guilty of sin, we deserve for God to punish us with eternal death and hell for going against him. That penalty must be paid. And because you and I are still not perfect today, how many of you, how many of you were perfect throughout this morning until now? Okay. Because of that, we still need God to make us clean so that we can be welcomed into the presence of God. And none of us has the ability to clean ourselves up that much. Since the two problems? But God always planned that he would save a people for himself and demonstrate his mercy through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is God the Son. As Paul said, Jesus is in very nature God. And Jesus voluntarily left heaven and took on human flesh. He humbled himself and was found in appearance as a man. And Jesus lived out a perfect human life, the life without sin that pleases God. Jesus is the only person ever to manage that feat. And Jesus willingly subjected himself to the horrors of the cross, willingly dying to pay the penalty for the sins of others as a perfect sacrifice. With me still? When Paul said in Ephesians 4, 9, Jesus descended, he's saying Jesus left heaven, became a man, and willingly went to the cross, and willingly went to the grave. That is an infinite descent, a lowering of himself from the highest possible place of glory to the lowest possible humiliation. And Jesus did this out of love for his father, and he did this out of love for those he will save. If you belong to Jesus, don't ever let yourself forget that Jesus did this out of love for you. And then Paul says, God the Father exalted Jesus. He lifted Jesus up. 
How? Jesus did not remain in the grave. On Sunday morning after the crucifixion, Jesus came back to life. And 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven, Acts chapter 1. And now Jesus is seated on the throne of heaven, reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus has received the name that is above every name. There is not a name in the universe greater than the name of Jesus. And every human being ever created will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. In Ephesians 4.10, Paul said that Jesus ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Above all heavens means Jesus ascended, as you and I already know, above all. There is nothing above Jesus. There is no place for Christ to strive to achieve as if he can take one more step higher. And he desires to fill all things. He's going to perfect the universe. The will of Jesus is going to be done in every last single thing. Everything will be to his glory. Everything that God ever created will be brought to its absolutely proper and perfect conclusion. And Jesus, in completing this glorious work, he solved our two big problems. Think about it. Jesus died to pay the price for our sins so that we wouldn't have to do it. That covers the punishment problem. And Jesus is willing to grant to you and me his perfect record, counting us as righteous before God. And when we die or or when Jesus returns, Jesus is going to finish perfecting us. That's what theologians call glorification. And it covers the perfection problem. Jesus pays our penalty and makes us able to enter the presence of God as God's own children. So if you've never come to Jesus, I really would encourage you to do so. Jesus is your only hope to be made right with God. You will, whether you believe it or not, you will bow before Jesus someday. If you bow to Jesus in faith, if you turn away from your sin, he will welcome you into his family in grace. But if you refuse Jesus in this life, you will bow before him just before you face the perfect penalty for your sins. Come to Jesus in life, and God gives you heaven. Refuse Jesus, and you earn hell for yourself. It's that simple. Important in our context for today, because all of you, remember, what have we been talking about? What's the sermon about? It's supposed to be about spiritual gifts, right? It's in the title. Important in the context for today is that the completed work of Jesus, his incarnation, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, his ascension into heaven, that is the source of your spiritual gift. He ascended and led captives in his train. He ascended to his throne. And from that throne, he grants his followers their gifts. So Christian, think about this for a second. This ought to make an impact on you. If your gift is the result of something as big and glorious as the gospel, your gift is more valuable than you ever could have imagined. Don't you think? I mean, 
if someone gives you a regular gift and you know they went through a significant amount of trouble to get it, doesn't it mean more? If somebody gives you a gift and they're like, I really wasn't thinking about you, but this sort of fell into my cart, so I bought it, you're not so excited. But the person that went through the trouble to make something for you or find the perfect thing for you, that gift means something more, right? Your gift is the result of the gospel. Can you get bigger than that? Let this motivate you to love Jesus and treasure the gifts that he's given you and let it motivate you to worship the Lord and let it motivate you to serve in his church as you experience the joy of his glory. Friends, the church should be super central to who you are and how you function because it is this church that Christ is building and that he has gifted you to help build. Do you get the significance? Okay, one more point. Point number three. Christ gifted the church with a variety of leaders. Christ gifted the church with a variety of leaders. Look at 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So now Paul's talking about gifts again, right? The gifts Jesus gave. Now he points out that there are a set of gifted people. There are individuals uniquely set apart by God for service in the body. And these gifts might be what I would call leadership gifts because each of these gifts represent a type of leader in the church. So first, Paul tells us Jesus gave apostles. The word apostle means a person who is sent. And biblically, an apostle was a person who saw with his own eyes the resurrected Lord Jesus, and the apostle is someone who was uniquely given authority by Jesus to speak and write the word of God for the church. Apostles had the authority to write scripture. Now, there are not apostles in the church any longer. The apostles were a particular group of men. The 11 faithful disciples, Matthias, who replaced Judas, the apostle Paul. And God uniquely used those men to build the early church. Those men proclaimed the gospel. They performed miracles that attested to the truth of Jesus. And those men suffered and died martyrs' deaths. Apostles, Matthew, John, Paul, Peter, they were used by God to write for us books of the Bible. But once those men died, the office of apostle did come to an end. There is no biblical evidence that God had any expectation of other apostles coming into the church after the first century. But these men, these apostles, they were and they still are a tremendous gift of God to the church because their work still reveals God to you today in the written word of God. That's apostles. So if you are in a church, if you're visiting a church, if you're talking to a Christian that says, oh, by the way, my pastor is also an apostle, get out. You giggle, but it's real. It happens regularly. How many of you have been in a church you've heard somebody claim their pastor or somebody was an apostle? It's not biblical. 
Second, God gave prophets to the church. And when we think about prophets, we're thinking about folks in the Old Testament, usually more than the New, right? You think prophets, you think Isaiah, Jeremiah. You think about people who heard from God and proclaimed the word of God to the people of Israel. Prophets, by the way, a lot of the ministry of the prophet in the Old Testament was a person preaching to the people from scriptures that had been written by other folks. They, they really were bringing out the word. But sometimes the prophets also would receive the revelation of God to proclaim. They would receive a new word from God. In the first century, before the canon of scripture was completed, there definitely were prophets in the church. Some of these were men like Agabus in Acts 21. And God used them to uniquely communicate and guide the early church and communicate the message of God, of the early, of God to the early church until the message of Scripture was completed. And the word prophets might be thought of as applying to men who were also used by God to write authoritative Scripture, but men who were not apostles, right? Mark, Luke, Jude, Maybe whoever wrote Hebrews, those all could be examples of people who were not official apostles, but who received the authoritative word of God for the church. Now, in the sense I'm describing here, and I want you to hear me, this is important. In the sense that we're describing of men who get new words from God, new authoritative revelation from God, I do not believe prophets still exist in the church. There are not people receiving new divine revelation. There is no one to fulfill the church office or role of prophet as we see here in Ephesians 4 because it's not needed in the church now that scripture has been completed. Now, this can lead to the debate, and lots of people have it, as to whether or not this means that the gift of prophecy no longer exists. Now again, if somebody comes to you and tells you, I'm a prophet, watch out. Because they're probably claiming that they're getting new revelations from God. If they're saying that, be very, very wary. Okay? Now, I will say to you though, I, I do think that the, the church member spiritual gift labels their categories more than they are a particular gift. There is a way some could say that the gift of prophecy still exists without there being prophets in the church. If the gift means, and understand this, if a person means by their gift that they have been gifted by God to speak God's word from Scripture with great insight and convicting power, and they think that is prophecy, then have at it. But the gift that I'm describing does not include getting a new word of revelation from God. It does not include the ability to predict the future the way that some Old Testament prophets did or Agabus did. Some people have said it this way and I think it kind of could help you. Those with the gift of prophecy are empowered by God for forth-telling. That is, speaking forth the truths of the Bible but they are not any longer empowered with the gift of foretelling to predict the future. Now again, there's other people that would say to you, no, nah, the gift of prophecy 
if they just, the only thing that they understand the gift of prophecy to mean is the idea of receiving and proclaiming new revelations from God like Old Testament prophets. If that is how you understand the word prophecy to be mean, I believe you should understand that that gift also has passed away by the time God finished inspiring the Bible. Now, again, am I going to come after you and tackle you if you use the words wrongly? Probably not. I'm no prophet. I can't see the future, so I guess I could. But I don't think so. But I want you to be very, very careful when someone claims gifts that include revelation because the word of God is fully complete and sufficient and we don't need new gifts of revelation. Okay? You want to talk to me more about this? I'll be happy for you to come fix my interpretation, okay? Third, gift of evangelists. These folks are a gift to the church. Man. They, they spread the message of Jesus all around the globe. In the Bible, we saw Philip, who was a, a, an evangelist. He traveled to Samaria. He later talked to the Ethiopian eunuch. He was not going to be the pastor of a church at that time. He was not an apostle. He was not a prophet. But he was used by God to carry the gospel to new places and new peoples. And I believe that the Lord still does give evangelists to the church today. Why would I say that? Unlike apostles and unlike prophets in the official sense of prophet, evangelists are not given fresh new words of revelation. So when you think about somebody who serves as a missionary, who's taken the gospel to new people groups, you got to think of evangelists. When, when you think of, of a believer who maybe not going to be a pastor in the local congregation, but is somebody especially gifted to share the gospel, I think of evangelists. When I think of people who throw themselves into the starting of new churches, who, who are great at the front-end process of church planting, but who are not going to be long-term pastors, I kind of think that's evangelists. But again, I'm, I'm, I don't know. You can figure that out on, yourself, on your own. Now again, Going forward, some people, when they study this passage, would say that the last two words go for one gift, one office in the church. I actually don't, but I know why they do. Paul says that God gifts the church with shepherds and teachers. Now, the word shepherd, the Greek word poimen, you know what we, what, what we translate that word as most often? Pastors. That means that the Bible is saying your pastor is a gift. You're welcome. <gasps> I, want more for, I want more for you than that, guys. Come on. Stepping on my idols. All right. Pastors are men charged by God to preach and to care for the local church. Pastors preach. Pastors teach. Since pastors teach, that's why they think pastors, shepherds and teachers are the same thing. They pray, they counsel, they offer guidance to the church as leaders. Now, in case you don't know, the word elder and the word overseer in the Bible, they mean different things, but they still refer to the same office, the office of pastors. So elders are overseers, are pastors, okay? Elders are pastors. So Jason, Harold, they are pastors, they are elders. They are overseers. We kept teasing Harold that we were going to call him Bishop Harold, but he really doesn't want to be called that. But if you want to, I'm not going to go on with that. God says leadership, people in leadership like that are a gift from God to the church. 
Now, the word teachers is, it could be a descriptive word for what pastors, elders, overseers do. Certainly, pastors teach. But I do think, honestly, that there are others in the church who will teach, who are gifted to teach, who are recognized as teachers, but who will not serve as pastors. What is one example that Travis can come up with really quickly of someone gifted to teach, able to teach, going to teach, called to teach in the church, but will not be a pastor? How about a faithful woman who teaches women in the body? Could be it. Pastors, elders, but also teachers. It is not, teacher is not a formal office here though, but it's a unique kind of person given by God to the church for God's purposes. Like I said, other people would say, nope, shepherds and teachers are the same thing because they're pastors who teach. Awesome. If you, if you want to go there, that's fine. But I think what I just described also does exist. Now, all these kinds of people, folks, In the first century, apostles and prophets, as well as the ongoing evangelists, pastors, teachers, they are all given by God to the church for a purpose. We are given by God to the church to help build up the body, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And Lord willing, we're going to talk about what that looks like next week. But for now, Christians, thank God for the gifts God has given the church. Be grateful for faithful evangelists. Be grateful for faithful pastors. Be grateful for faithful teachers. And do not neglect those gifts. If God has gifted you with faithful elders, work with your elders. Learn from your elders. Pray for your elders. Receive the blessing God intended for you. But also, church, remember that these gifts are things God intended that would be a part of the unity and the growth of the local church. Every believer has been given a gift by God. You, if you're a Christian, have a gift from God. You are to use that gift in the local church for the local church's good. You're to use your gift in the local church for the glory of God. Your gift comes to you through the accomplished gospel work of Jesus. So be thankful for your gift and treasure your gift even more than you ever did because of the grace of Jesus. And yes, even the leaders God has given you in your church, when faithful to the Lord and to his word, are gifts to be treasured and not neglected. So Christians, let this all call you to great devotion to the Lord and active faithfulness in the local church church. And for you who are still unsure about where you stand before Jesus, I want you to remember the gospel message we did earlier. Jesus came down from heaven to earth to die for our sins. Jesus rose from the grave and Jesus is alive right now. If you want to be forgiven by God, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to have heaven and not hell, you must entrust your very soul to Jesus. Believe in Jesus, turn from sin, ask Jesus for grace. He will save you and that will be giving you the very greatest gift of all, the gift of the kind, loving, gracious salvation of God. Let's bow together and pray, friends. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you have gifted your church. Father, it is hard to teach this and get it right. I pray that you will help us to remember what is faithful. 
I pray you would protect us from those who would claim gifts that don't apply. Help us to see, though, that we each have been given gifts by you that we are to be using right here in this church. God, for every believer who is gifted but not using their gifts in the local body, I pray strong conviction. For every believer who sits here and says, I don't know what my gifts are, so I will just go to church on a Sunday morning and that's all I'll do, I pray conviction because that is not what your word says about us. I pray, God, you will help us know our gifts, use our gifts for your glory. I pray you help us embrace the gospel and see that it is the source of our gifts so that we see how valuable our gifts are. I pray that you help us For me, for for the elders in our church, I pray that you gift us well to serve this body, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. I pray you would give us more elders as we need them. I pray you will strengthen the elders we have. I pray you will shape our church to be best equipped to magnify you. And I pray for anyone who hears this message who doesn't know Jesus, that this explanation of the gospel in this message would be a tool you use to draw people to saving faith. And I pray it all in Christ's holy name. Amen.